Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the EG Property Podcast. I'm your host for today, EG Editor Sam McClary. On today's show I'm talking with Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees about leadership, resilience and what Bristol needs from the built environment. This interview was, of course, recorded over Teams, so it's a little bit crackly at times. It does feature my cat deciding that she wants to say hello to Marvin too, but is, of course, well worth a right good listen. So grab that cuppa or lace up your trainers for your daily constitutional, pop in your AirPods, other headphones are available, and enjoy. Today I am joined uh, for this EG interview with the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, and over the course of the next sort of 45 minutes or so, we're going to talk, obviously, about Bristol, um, what will be his five-year term, that extra extra year due to COVID pushing elections back to May next year, and what he's enabled in the city and, and what hopes he has left for, for the City of Hope. Um, but I want to start this conversation with with something a little bit different, or I should really say a little bit different. Um, so Marvin is uh, really excitingly lending his support to the EG Future Leaders project, um, a project that we launched two years ago to uncover the hidden talents in the built environment. And for two years, we've been encouraging women to step into the limelight and for their businesses to support them. But now it's time that we extend the project to all underrepresented groups in the built environment. Um, because if we really want the business, businesses, the economy, our towns and our cities and our planet to flourish, we need the greatest minds. We need a collection of ideas and we need a whole group effort to make a difference. And if there's one person who is passionate about equality, diversity and opening doors, I think that has to be you, Mr. Marvin Rees. Uh, Marvin, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. very well, very well. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd like to start this conversation there, actually, and and just find out a little bit more about what it is that makes you so passionate about inclusivity and building a fairer and more inclusive world. Well, it... it and originally comes, I guess, from the circumstances of my birth and um, just what I experienced growing up. My um, my mum had me in 1972, unmarried, I use this description a lot, it's a bit brutal, but unmarried white woman, not much money, brown baby on the way. And um, we ended up living in a refuge for a while and, you know, and, and I, so I experienced some of the dynamics of racism, even before I had the ability to explain it. But I also watched my mum as a, you know, a working class or sub-working class, as it were, a white woman with a brown baby struggling and being disrespected. Um, and that always burned in me. And, uh, and then I always had a sense of concern for other people I felt were in the limp, were in the world, were being left behind, being mistreated. No, saintly, I, I'm as fallen as any other person on this planet. Um, but, but, but it has been something that, you know, a sense of burden that I've carried and wanted to do something about. And and in your position now, do you what are you doing to enable that diversity and equality? And and what do you what do you see the impact of that being in in the city? So one is bringing a greater diversity of thought into city leadership 
is a broad spectrum of activity. Uh, on one sense, it is simply about making a city more just, right? So we live in one of the most socially immobile countries in OECD. That's nothing kind of, no great shocks about that. That's the way it is. And, and there's a report written by, which I always cite from 2014, I know it's been updated since, but it's called Elitist Britain. And the report says, um, and the forward is written by David Cameron, Nick Clegg, um, um, John Major and Ed Miliband. So it's not some kind of mad out there report. But what it looks at the data, it says that the relationship between the British elite and people from wealthy backgrounds is so strong, it looks like social engineering. Hmm. It says, in fact, you have to ask the question, to what extent does our elite reflect talent rather than merit? This is a big challenge for us, right? When we look hmm. around at the senior people in our sectors and our organisations, there is a legitimate question to ask is, are they here because of the circumstances into which they were born? Or are they actually the best? And our data tells us that somewhere, maybe not in your organization, but somewhere out there, the people at the top of the tree are not the best. They're there because of the circumstances they were born into. That's not an emotional statement. It's, it's driven by the data. But we, we, so, you know, there's a sense in which you just have to front that up and then begin to say, okay, well, how are we going to go out and identify talent that would not normally find its way into our sector or our organization? Or if it does find its way in, be able to rise up through the ranks into positions of seniority. And you just got to do that on purpose. We've done things in the city like um, the Bristol Equality Charter that, that takes issues like that into account. Or Stepping Up is a program we've run. Um, interestingly, the private sector has been amongst the biggest drivers of Stepping Up, where we identify talent, mid-level managers, a year of mentoring, the stretch assignments, new networks. And, and in that first cohort, 60% went on to get promotions. Mm. And that was from black and Asian communities. Now they've expanded out to women and disabled people as well. And again, continues to be well received. In fact, that program was the overall winner of the CIPD People Management Awards uh, this year. So incredible program. Congratulations. So those specific things, oh, uh, my deputy mayor, I should, I, I'm not taking any credit for that. My deputy <laughs> mayor and Christine Bamford and, and a few other people. Um, so those specific, but the actually the, the challenge goes broader, it goes into the wider social injustices and those drivers of social immobility as well. Housing, educational start in life, access to quality uh, food, access to work experience for 15, 16 year old students. 56% of children in my city were not getting access to meaningful work experience when I came into office. That has lifetime consequences, but you know, because it sets a trajectory, doesn't it? career if you know what something is and how it was and we know which 56% that was um, so we've done the try to work on the spectrum specific interventions to support companies identify talent and bring them up through the ranks but dealing with the wider drivers of social immobility so I mean I guess there's there's two there's a push and a pull isn't there with getting um, people into positions based on on merit and based on their their talent rather than where they're where they're from and that's businesses and people going looking and those those people who have that talent making themselves seen and 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 I guess it's it's quite both of those things are quite difficult I've had quite a lot of conversations recently with with people who I think have um such huge amounts of of talent in them but there is a there is a fear of being singled out for that talent and and I wonder if there's what we should do to try and remove that fear and whether there is 
a a really big need to to find to give people the power I guess to open those doors and I know that you said for you it was um the future the Labour future candidate that um showed you that there were there were doors that can be opened and you, you should definitely open them yeah that so there is a push and a, a pull so on the point of being people that put yourselves forward so I can give a personal story to that I don't want to rag on the BBC, but I was at the BBC for five years as a broadcast journalist. I just returned from the United States where I'd finished my second master's degree and I was working for Tony Campolo, who's an advisor to Bill Clinton. I come back, I joined the BBC in 2000. Uh, 2000. Um, I left in 2005, December. I joined as a band five journalist on probably on about £18,000 a year. I left five years later as a band five journalist on about £22,500 a year, right? So in that time, I, I joined that organisation feeling like I was going 100 mile an hour. You know, I'd lived in the United States on and off for three and a half, four years. I'd done all these things. I'd, and, and I come back and you come in, you share your ideas. But if the culture does not begin to agree with you and doesn't begin to respect you, you begin to self-edit. So I began to self-edit myself out away from, well, I know this person isn't going to listen to me, so why would I gain? And that happens very slowly. Um, it's like the, the, you know, the frog in boiling water until one day you realise you're so far on the margins. Now, I've, I've been fortunate in that I've then found other pathways because I, I do, I've built a degree of resilience. So I came out, I found another pathway and interestingly and i think maybe my story does offer a challenge when people are not developing talent that within five years of leaving the bbc i was at the yale i was a yale ward fellow uh, on ward fellows program my next door neighbor was alexei navalny you know who's uh, taking on putin so i'm i'm hanging around with these so how how would in five years things move so quickly after they've been so turgid for the previous five um and then within another five years i was mayor of bristol today i'm on the executive committee of the global parliament of mayors i'm you know, doing this, that and the other on, on a global stage and I've got a lot of people asking me things. So, you know, there was a five year period where an organisation had no ability to create an environment that allowed me to develop my skills and flourish and contribute, actually, um, in a way that I'd like to have, have contributed. So I think, it, it, you know, there's, there's, there's a response to, let uh, I me mean, just football managers, sports managers do that. You know, you, you get a player in, you've got to create an environment in which they can flourish, as the Alice Ferguson point. <laughs> Um, but individuals do need to also find that opportunity to develop that resilience just to keep plugging. Um, but I don't like to look, I, I mean, people have responsibility, but I think sometimes organisations offload responsibility for creating environments in which people can flourish onto individuals. And when those individuals leave, they say, well, they didn't, they couldn't cut it. That's, 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 that's abdicating responsibility. And I think we need to look at how we identify, bring forward, retain, nurture, develop talent. And it's for good reason, isn't it? Not just because it's the right thing to do as as a human to, um, uh, you know, sort of enable people to grow. But if you look at it from a cold hard business perspective, it's good for it's good for business and it it's good for a, a city or a town to have all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. That's that's how we make a place. Well, yeah, I mean, there is the there's the social justice issue. And then by clearly, if you're an organization that is reducing its churn of staff, 
um, you're saving some cost. But there's actually, I just share, I often share this report from McKinsey, which is no bleeding heart kind of, you know, <laughs> but in their report from Diversity Matters, um, it was written a few years ago, it's really worth looking up. It says companies in the top quartile for diversity are 35% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry medians. Companies in the top quartile for gender diversity are 15% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry uh, medians. Companies in the bottom quartile for both um, ethnicity and race are statistically less likely to achieve above average financial returns. I mean, you know, the, the data is there. It is about social justice, but it's about all those all those advantages you begin to get as an organisation if you're accessing a diversity of thought. Um, the you know the, the greater innovation, understanding your market better, greater dynamism, avoiding groupthink. Nokia got caught up in that, didn't they? <laughs> you know, avoid the groupthink that that leaves you one day realizing that the, the world's left you behind. And and how important is it to bring that diversity of thought, of background, of experience to a leadership position as well? Not just to have people within your business, but to have people at the very top of the business that that are that are different to each other. Well, I think it's um, I think it's important, and this is not about getting rid of the kind of establishment way of thinking. It's genuinely is about diversity. It's about retaining the kind of the standardised, you know, traditional way of thinking and bringing something to it. Because I, I just think, yeah, if we want to innovate. You know, I, I when people bring new thinking in, they'll be identifying new challenges um, that perhaps people wouldn't have seen before. Identifying new new problems. But actually, if they're sold, can open up whole new market um, opportunities uh, for, for 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 businesses. Um, so yeah, um, um, there's a paper written some years ago by IBM. It's a very old paper. I think it's from 2004. But it's at Harvard Business Review. It's worth what the reading. It's called Diversity as Strategy, and it said that Lou Gerstner, um, when he kind of turned IBM around, a lot of people make a lot about his management techniques, but actually. He, his approach was also about diversity of strategy, and IBM had a long tradition for this. And it made it be, being accessing diversity gave them access to tens of millions of dollars worth of, of, of revenue. One of those was about um, because they had disabled people in leadership positions, they became aware of changes to federal legislation around accessibility. They positioned themselves, they hoovered it up. And it's a great quote. I think it's from. I think it might be from about 1953 at IBM. I think they employed the first ever female uh, VP or something like that. And she said, "Don't you think it makes sense to understand the buying habits of half your population <laughs> when you're trying to sell stuff? So bringing people in who give give you an awareness of the way the world works, and perhaps you know, just to me to make to make strategic sense. And and I guess that that sort of works with um mayors as well doesn't it in the fact that through devolution we're meant anyway to have um people in in cities and regions that that know their cities and regions better than anyone else because they're part of it and that you know they are that community and you know we have we, obviously we've seen com some quite powerful um leadership over over recent days and and you know some uh some some powerful sort of un unafraidedness if that is a word from from Andy Burnham to stand up to quote unquote the big boss at, at the central house and say 
no, you don't you don't know my people. This is what's best for my my people. And I guess I wanted to turn that around for you to see for you. What do you how do you see your role as a as a leader of of Bristol, of being part of that community? Um, being their voice and inspiring others to to be a voice for Bristol as as well. I'm always wary of the word inspiring. Um, you, you do what you do, but so I think there's something hugely significant that's been happening, and actually it's been going on for some years. It's just not necessarily been picked up by um, the media. In that there has been a real surge of the need for cities to have a greater opportunity to shape the national and international context in which they work, not just to shape what goes on inside the city boundaries, um, but to be involved. In, so you look at climate change. If you decarbonise the world's cities, we'd solve it. Right? Um, most of the world's live in cities now. Um, you know, we deal with the consequences of failed national and international policy. The United States is writ large about that at the moment. I don't know. I'm not going to assume anyone stands on Donald Trump. But I'm certainly close to a number of U.S. mayors. And when Trump withdrew from Paris, they said, don't worry, we're still in. We're the mayors of our cities. We're still going to do it. When he went after migrants, Bill de Blasier in New York gave out ID cards to make sure that, that people had access to public services. They run their uh, their places. So it, it's, it's been a big move. There's a couple of things I'd say on it. One is what you're seeing at the moment around COVID as well is another example of diversity of thought. We cannot take this challenge on simply by a few people with um, with some, you know, maybe clever people sitting in rooms in Whitehall and Westminster dreaming up solutions for Manchester, Newcastle, Bristol, Cardiff, Glasgow. It ain't going to work. So when we talk about diversity of thought, the same thing stands. We've got to get views from different parts of the country, experiencing the UK and the world in different ways before we just think that there's a one size fits all uh, um, uh, solution. I think what we're also seeing is, is the is the urgent need to really lock down a changing in the nature of the relationship between city government, I want to say, because and national. It's not two tiers of government anymore. In fact, I would say there's much more dynamism and vision and focus on delivery in our cities and towns than there is in the turgid processes of Whitehall and Westminster uh, right now. So we need a, a new sovereign uh, settlement. To be honest, people were talking about this for a long Michael has time mentioned stuff like this in the 80s. I don't want to try to speak for him, but he talks about releasing the power of our cities and city regions. Um, so Bob Kerstake published um, UK 2070 just recently, again, making uh, the, the case for that. Um, unless we do that, I don't think we'll ever untap the full potential of this country, uh, both in terms of its ability to think dynamically about the world, um, but certainly the national government does not have the machinery to be able to enable this country to deliver in the way that it could. It's that um, sort of uh, tanker speedboat analogy, isn't it? And the cities can definitely be the speedboats. Yeah, we're talking, I mean, I've just come off a core cities call, the, ten, the leaders of the 10 biggest cities outside of London. I mean, we're talking about how we reach out to our European cities, whatever goes on at the national level. You know, we'll, we'll be reaching out and saying, how can we keep those bridges open for our businesses to connect with European? You know, but but we need we will do it within the limitations of our our, our constitution and, and whatever deal is done. But we'll be pushing at the boundaries to try and make up new opportunities for us to support our universities and our businesses to continue doing business in the way that would they would want to. And that is what 
leadership is or should be about, isn't it? It's about doing the very best for a a a whole, not just for a a singular. I think so. It's, it, I mean, leadership's about so many different things, isn't it? Um, so, you know, I was asked to give an answer to a young member of the Prince's Trust today, actually, a little video, and it's about, well, I want to be a leader, what is it? And I, one of the things I was going to say is leadership is not, not thinking you have to be the best at everything as well. Great leaders create the conditions for people around them to flourish, and they're not afraid to have people with them who are smarter than them. I use a story from West Wing quite a lot, right? And it's... It's Bartlett, the president, is going off to give his State of the Union. And they've got the designated survival in the Oval Office. And on his way, have you got a best friend? He said, yeah. He says, he's smarter than you. He said, yeah. He said, do you trust him with your life? He said, yeah. He said, there's your chief of staff. And I think the principle has to be find people who are smarter than you and see if you can get them to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> and then sit in a room with really smart intimidate you, but have the confidence to sit in that room with people who are smarter than you and not, be, not feel you need to douse down their light which is what I try to do. <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how do you then, how do you have that confidence to not be afraid of people being smarter than you and to actively wel- welcome them into to your, to your group? Um, I'm not too sure. Um, <laughs> I suppose one of it is, is um, so I had a seminal experience, if I can share that. When I was when I was um, 18, I was going to join the uh, Royal Marines, right? I, and I, I got a bad eye condition, so I wasn't able to join in the end. But if they like you, they start taking you away on trips. So I went up to a place called Mokokin, right, with all these uh, 17-year-olds who wanted to be Royal Marine officers. I think I was probably the only comprehensive school kid there. I remember. <laughs> um, but so we all spend our days running around trying to prove how fit we are. And we'd come back from this day and we'd done this exercise and we'd run up and down the mountain. And, and there was a guy there who led the most decorated troop in the Falklands, they were telling us. He was a superstar Royal Marine officer. And he said to us in our debrief, he said, you guys, you think that being a great Royal Marine officer is all about carrying 100-pound packs up mountains. He said, there's an element of that that's true. But he said, but the best officer will find the best shot and give them the rifle, the best mm-hmm. map reader and give them the map, the fittest guy and give them the heaviest Bergen. He said, and then... They will get by on four hours sleep so their guys can have six hours sleep. And obviously, I'm 48 now. That was 17. I never forgot that. You find great people and you let them be great at what they can be great at. Then everyone wins, right? If I take the map because I'm afraid of your map reading skills, I'll get us lost. This guy won't. And, and I think I took that to, to heart. And then I think there's, there's a lot of confidence in not everyone has the ability to feel comfortable with people around them who are smarter than them. That in and of itself is a skill. Mm. And actually... Will smart people work for you? <laughs> That's like, smart people won't work for everyone. They'll go and work for someone else. So if smart people are staying with you, you you've got something to offer, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's about there's a there's an element of being honest there and honest and, and vulnerable, I suppose, to to understand where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and not be afraid of saying, Hey, well, this is this is me and this is what you get, this is what I'm good at, this is where I need some some help. And I think, you know, there's lo- there's well, that's all of us, isn't it? And perhaps we could all be, all be great leaders if we can all be truly honest. Yeah, I mean, not everyone's a, not everyone's a scrum half, are they? Not everyone's a prop forward. <laughs> it's like you find your place in the team. And some people they they were okay at rugby, but then actually they find their golden age as coaches. I mean, you know, it's we do what we 
you know, we we we, we do what we can, um, and we 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 grow into our spot, I guess, over time. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and for for you on your route to um, becoming mayor of Bristol, can you can you share some great stories of? of understanding how you can be a great le leader. Is there, there anything that you've learned within within your time as mayor that you would like to pass forward um, from your from your own experiences over the last last few years? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things that have just, I suppose, been proven. I, it's strange to say it's not there's necessarily been any amazing shocks. The biggest shock has been the way the world responds. Mm. Um, actually, being a, a you know you cross the line, you become a politician. It's like you, you have no. It's like they say you have no history now. So when I've got um, and excuse me, I want my. Yeah, I'm not ragging on anyone for this, but when I've got an Oxbridge educated journalist talking to me like I'm a member of the establishment, <laughs> when I've come from a refuge, it was like hold on now, friend. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's been interesting, but. I think the key thing I would say is make a plan, any plan, just make a bloody plan, which is what a friend of mine, an army officer said, you know, it's, you've got to put a plan in place. And when we came into office, um, we did a piece of analysis in, 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 by means of setting up something called the Bristol city office. And we got all our organizations in the city to, to kind of lay their strategies against each other. And we found out that in 2017, very few strategies went beyond 2021, 2022. So as a city, we weren't planning more than four or five years ahead. Um, as a city, we need to be planning 50 years ahead. So we've gone through a whole process of just trying to make a plan, recognising it's not perfect, it's going to change, it's got concrete boots. But we have to make some clear statements and, and, and ideas about where we want to be in the future and how we're going to get there. And that, that big field on which we can all, uh, again, working together, discussing with each other, aligning and, and pointing out our contradictions and and holding ourselves accountable to each other. And, and let, let's talk a little bit about about that plan and and um, what you've done for the for the city so far. Anyway, I know um, you talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, housing and the need for for housing, and you've delivered almost seven thousand new homes. Is that right? A thousand of which are affordable. We've got good numbers. Um... But, you know, this last year has been a challenge, to be perfectly frank. Um, uh, so it's kind of knocked us out a little bit. But but I think we've managed to certainly turn around the city's reputation um, over the last few years. And and you've also attracted, my cat is going to join our conversation, apologies uh, for that. <laughs> um, uh, it's always the way. Uh, you've also attracted Channel 4 to the, to the city and that has been phenomenal. That was a huge... Um, contribution to Bristol, considering the profile of the move of Channel 4 away from London, um, they chose Bristol. And and at, in, in fact, I would say there is another business advantage, there is another business case for diversity on that, because I think one of the reasons they chose us because they, they believed that our commitment to diversity uh, was real. I'm not saying the others were not real, um, but they, I'm sure they were. Um, but in Bristol, we have great connectivities to our grassroots organisations, and um, we offer them, you know, genuine uh, relationships. So it was clearly a part of it. Excellent. And you'd also, and I, this was um, uh, a discovery to me. I, I have to admit, when I was doing doing my research, that you were the first local authority to 
um, ban the box, which I had to look up. Um, but um, that is a is a, a great initiative. And I wondered if you could talk us through a little bit about the why and um, and what banning the box has done for one, maybe bringing through new new talent and new leadership that um, people wouldn't have even thought about if they if the box wasn't banned. Uh, and and what it's done for the diversity of, of workforce in general. So so that's the box that requires people to declare um, convictions, criminal convictions, um, at, at the early stage of an application process. And um, in fact, the first the first I heard of that was um, Barack Obama had led an initiative in the United States on that. And it's about supporting people to get back into the economy. You know, people do things, and um, sometimes they do them on purpose. Sometimes they're mistakes. Um, and they end up in the um, serving time. Um, and then what we need is we always need an opportunity for, for redemption in our society. It's something that's disappearing quite fast. But, you know, people need to be able to change things and um, restore life. And that's what we, we want to be a part of that. So we've done it in, um, in our local authority. I haven't got specific numbers at the moment, uh, but we, we did it and we shared it with other organisations in the city and, and obviously with other local authorities as well. It's it's a it's a really um, great initiative, and I think there you know it's it's like you said earlier there is there is everyone deserves a second chance, and there is there is so much talent out out there, and that deserves the the pull and the push, and the um, businesses need to create the environment for people to to thrive. Mm, absolutely, um, like I say, we it, you know cities are collective endeavours, as is the country. Um, I am elected mayor. But um, life does what people get from Bristol is not the result of decisions that I make alone. People sit at the intersection of local government, the health service that I do not control, the private sector that I do not control, trade unions that I do not control, voluntary sector organisations I don't control, government departments. People sit at the intersections of decisions made by all of those organisations. Um, and so uh, every step, what we've been trying to do is, is get alignment, uh, get agreement and alignment between what we all want to get done um, in Bristol, rather than telling a thousand stories pointing in a thousand different um, directions. And and uh, so our audience at EG, is, as you'll know, and the, the people listening to, to this interview will be from the from the built environment, a lot, a lot of um, real estate professionals. And I, I'd love to know from from you what you would like to 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 get from them i suppose or what kind of relationship you'd, you'd like to continue to build with the built environment um to enable bristol to be the city of hope and to be that that beacon for for cities all around the uk around the around the world well people involved in the built environment have a huge uh, role to play uh, you know on on the face of it, clearly, we're talking about, for, for us in Bristol, quality homes, right? affordable homes, where people can live in community, have that resilience, that relationship, have hope in their lives. Um, for me, homes is one of the single most significant interventions, uh, policy, um, social policy interventions we can make. Um, so when, when people ask me what, what helped me escape the circumstances of my uh, uh, birth and that, you know, boxing is one, having a loving family is another, having a couple of good teachers is another, getting outside the city boundaries is one, I managed to get through to the Breckens a couple of times, 
Um, but actually having a stable home that was warm when it needed to be, actually it wasn't, we had a little Calais fire, so it was cold, <laughs> but it was stable and it was safe, right? It was massive. But I think there's another, there's a, there's a whole other uh, scale of, of opportunity and responsibility on people who are involved in the built environment, and that's around climate and ecology. So we've got to do the work on economic inclusion, building genuine communities and all that. But actually, um, I think we're in a stage now where we need our cities to go on 15, 20 year journeys of being reconceptualized, replanned and rebuilt. Um, they need to be decarbonized and they need to be made uh, nature friendly. So we've launched our climate emergency strategy. We've launched our ecological strategy as well, where you know we want to see species return into the city. We want greenery around wild, um, you know, wild areas where insects can come again. Cities have responsibility now to do that, but local government can't do it alone. We need the expertise. We need people with the vision and the imagination. Um, you know, the expertise on how to decarbonize our city systems. And we need new financial models. It's a conversation I'm having with the World Economic Forum. I now sit on their Future Cities uh, board. And um, I raised it at the C40 the other day um, that we need some of these big, global funders and investors to think of new financial vehicles that will accompany cities on that reinvention um, because this is where the, the the solutions are going to be and i think people in that sector beginning to step into that space thinking what do we need cities to be in 20 years time that's that's where we need the sector to start going realizing the scale of responsibility that's on its shoulders and as a collective there's so much power there to bring about change isn't there oh huge Everyone's looking for solutions. There's, there's not a mayor on the planet that isn't contending with the challenge of rapid urbanization, how we face rapid urbanization um, in the face of limited housing supplies, how we get the houses up quick enough, how we increase our resilience to pandemics. I'll tell you what, a, a few years ago, I hosted in Bristol the Global Parliament of Mayors. And um, so we had mayors from all over the world, the UN were here, WHO, and and we have three papers that were brought for us to talk about as cities and then develop a global parliament and mayor's position on to feed into the relevant bodies, UN and so forth. One was on migration, right? The other was on urban security. Most migrants leave cities, work, go travel through cities and target cities and then go back to cities. So cities have to shape migration policy. Uh, second, urban security. And that goes from kind of over kind of Kalashnikov style conflict to street violence and gangs and so forth. But urban security is also about domestic violence as well. So it's a whole spectrum of violence within cities. The third paper didn't make any sense to me in 2018. It was about pandemics. Mm. And I was thinking this is a this is a southern hemisphere problem. This is not something for northern hemisphere cities to be worried about. We'll do it because we had a load of mayors from Africa and Asia and South America with us. But it's not really my issue. Boom. Now you see, mm -hmm. cities need resilience and they need to be designed to be uh, resilient. And again, people in your sector can be on the forefront of thinking about what life needs to be like and can be like um, in, in the coming years and how cities will facilitate those kind of lives. And that leads me um, really perfectly, actually, to um, sort of the, the final question for today, which was I was going to say it's been quite a year. Um, because of of the pandemic that we that we've faced, you know, it's been a year of of great loss and of great hardship, but it's also been a year of great community spirit, and we've seen some 
phenomenal acts of kind kindness. Um, and and we hope, I know we were talking just before um, we started recording, that we hope there's going to be some more acts of kindness to, to make sure that um, kids don't go hung, hungry. Um, but you talked a, a little bit earlier and I, and I thought it sounded like, you know, while we have been through this, this really tough time this year, there is opportunity to come out of that because we have, there has been this shift that people have started to look at um, sustainability really seriously. We have started to look at the need really seriously. And perhaps there has been a short moment of pause for people to, to think about what really matters. And so I wanted to close with what um, for you is you're going to take away from 2020 and what you'll be carrying forward to 2021 and, and beyond? I, th I think I would take away the, the energy we have seen in our communities, but not just in our communities, in our organisations as well. That, that willingness and desire people have um, in their private lives and in their professional lives to, to identify and contribute to the common good. So there's a, we, 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 Bristol was, Bristol's been named a city of hope. Um, so some years ago, we were actually presented with a plaque. And but that kind of declaration over Bristol is not a statement of what we have actually achieved. It's a statement of what we're moving towards and what we will continually have to work for. Um, so we, we want to be a city of hope. Now, but there's a there's a proverb I often cite and it inspires our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. And what we've seen in the middle of all this suffering is the, the ability to persevere. Our communities have come forward, our organisations, from our universities to our business community, um, voluntary sector, all working together. Even today, we're talking about how we're going to feed our children. You know, that's that's a that's a collective act. That therein is one of the secrets of perseverance. What you do in the face of adversity, and I think we've learned a lot about ourselves as a city because, um, you know, your ability to persevere is something you discover. It's not just a, a you know, it's not just a characteristic you have. You you learn it and you exercise it and it grows because you have overcome before. Um, and that's been quite remarkable uh, within the city. That's not to say there aren't glitches. Of course there are. With any trial, there are failures, right? Um, but we've shown, our, we've shown a, a desire and a willingness to come together for the city's common good. Are you confident that Bristol is, is a resilient city now and and has what it needs in place to, to be resilient. So I wouldn't want to overclaim on that. Having said that, I, I think um, we have many, many challenges uh, within the city and these are going to get worse over the coming uh, months, certainly. Uh, we have one in four of our children living in poverty in Bristol. We have a large number of children at risk of hunger. We still have a housing crisis. Um, we have fractures that will probably get exacerbated over the coming economic um, downturn. So there are many, many points of challenge and, and weakness, and some of those we will, some of those will will leave us found wanting, mm. right? Because that's just the nature of life. Um, but what we always have is that source of effort and work, and people in the city who, in the face of all that, are want to step up and do something about it. And, you know, when succeed or fail, that's inspiring to be to, to have those people around. 
Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And and what a great place to end, particularly as we were we started this conversation talking about future leaders. What um what a place to end with is about stepping up and um and doing doing what we can. Um, Marvin, it's been really great talking to you. Um, let's keep in touch. I'm going to do my best to step up. I hope you keep stepping up and uh, bringing others with you. But thanks so much for, for chatting with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EG Property Podcast. We hope you found the content insightful and helpful. If you'd like more of the same and to keep up with all the latest news, views, analysis and research that the EG Group has to provide, be sure to sign up to all of our property podcasts and subscribe to Radius Data Exchange for unlimited access to all of our content and comprehensive commercial real estate data.